Thanks, Christine, for sharing your testimony. Made me think of the time when we um, did uh, your, your Calvary story, and we had almost everybody in the church family share their testimony about how Jesus changed their lives. Uh, and we've talked about doing that again, so we just need to implement that. Not that we force you to give your testimony, but if you would like to share your testimony about how God has uh, made a difference in your life, brought you from a sinner bound for hell to a saint on their way to heaven, uh, we need to get that going so we can uh, set that back up and enjoy hearing the change that God has made in others' lives. All right, we're going to continue our series in the book of Acts. You say, Pastor, you said it was a series on sermons. Well, it is, and the sermons all come from, come from the book of Acts. And so we'd actually like you to take your copy of the scriptures and meet me in Acts chapter 3. That's where our text will come from this morning, Acts chapter 3. Uh, we began this series last week talking about great sermons from the book of Acts. Um, we looked at Peter's sermon on Pentecost last week, um, and that's how we started this series. And man, what a ser sermon he preached, okay? He was a, a man on fire for the Lord, and he preached, um, and God used the message that he preached to bring thousands of people to an understanding of who Jesus was. You know, we talk about people like Billy Graham and how effective their ministry was down through the years um, and how he preached before hundreds. But you can imagine, can you imagine how many people heard that sermon on Pentecost so that thousands of people came to know the Lord on that day? Okay, what a, what a great opportunity it was to preach the Word of God. And so this morning we're going to take a look at another sermon from the Apostle Peter. But as we look at these messages that, we, that we're studying in the book of Acts, we're going to kind of take a trek through the book of Acts itself, and we're going to see how God brought the church into existence. It's a fulfillment of the promise that Jesus gave over in Matthew chapter 18, where he said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus in the book of Acts was in the process of building his church. And you know what? He's still building it today. He's not finished. You say, well, Pastor, how do you know he's not finished building the church? Well, because we're still here. I tell people that God's not finished with the church. And, and the reason for that is because he's left us here on the earth. The moment, the very moment he's finished with the church, we're going to hear the trump. The dead in Christ will raise, and those of us who are alive will be caught up in the air, and so shall we meet the Lord in the air. He'll take us home, and we'll start our time in heaven with Him. What a glorious day that's going to be. But until then, we're to be faithful in tools that He uses to build His church. And we're going to see the initial, the foundation, if you will, as we study these sermons throughout the book of Acts. And you know what's foundational? You know what tool was the only and most important tool? Like, like we're doing some stuff in the basement of the parsonage to get ready for our daughter to come. And, and Nick's been over there helping us, and he brings certain tools that I don't have, okay? Um, and tools that I probably will never have because I don't have need for them. But he knows, and, and every tool he brings, he knows exactly how to use it. And it's like, wow, that's pretty cool. And, and I'm thankful for the knowledge that he brings with him to use the tools. And, and we're talking about tools that Jesus is using to build the church. You know what tool he's using? The most and only effective tool is the gospel. 
The gospel of Jesus Christ. And can I tell you something? The gospel isn't only necessary for our salvation. It is 100% absolutely necessary for salvation. But we shouldn't move past the gospel as if it was only good for that. If we go back to the gospel on a regular basis, it reminds us of where we've come from. It reminds us of what God is doing in our lives. It reminds us of where we're going. It just is a something that we should be refreshing in our minds over and over and over again. It is the amazing tool that God will use to help us grow in our relationship with him. We see in these messages that the clarification of the gospel, we just keep finding out more and more and more and more points and more information. And and it's not going to be new information, but it's further explanation of the most essential message that anyone can ever hear. So enjoy the study in the book of Acts as we look at these great sermons and we were reminded over and over and over again about the significance of the gospel. You'll notice this morning that the title of our message is The Triumph of the Gospel or The Triumph at the Temple. I want you to think for a few moments about the temple, the temple in Israel. What was the temple? This was not Solomon's temple because that had been destroyed. This is what we would refer to as Herod's temple. Okay, And Herod built this temple because Herod wanted to build a name for himself. He really didn't have much concern for the things of God. Yes, he was a Jew, but... You know, he wanted his name on the temple. He wanted people to look at that and say, wow, what an amazing piece of architecture. Thank you, Herod, for giving us such an amazing temple. And so the focus was to be on Herod from Herod's perspective, not necessarily on God. But this temple was magnificent. You'll remember the conversation that the disciples had with Jesus. And they said, Jesus, look at this temple. Look how beautiful it is. And by the way, Herod's temple didn't hold a candle to Solomon's temple. Okay, But Herod's temple in its own right was a magnificent building. And the disciples said, look at this building. Look how grand and how glorious it is. How amazing it is. And Jesus said, I could destroy it in three days and build it all over again. He wasn't talking necessarily about that temple. We know that he was eventually talking about his body, which was far more important than the temple building itself. But the Jewish people took so much pride and so much, um, uh, they put such an emphasis on the physical building, the temple that was there. And, And that was kind of their centerpiece, if you will, for worship. It was where they went and people would gather outside that were sick and needed to collect alms and all that kind of stuff. They would spend time at the temple. The temple served a significant purpose in God's plan. But can we say this? At this point in the history of the Jewish people, it had been hijacked. Okay? The temple was not serving the purpose God intended for it to pr- serve. Rather, it was a kind of just a look at what we do at the temple and it brought attention to people rather than focusing on who God was. It was the heart and soul of the very Jewish religious system that had rejected the Messiah. No, he's not the one. We don't want him. We want somebody else. You see... This morning, as we look at this triumph at the temple, I want you to understand that it's not about the temple. It's about what took place at the temple and the, and the message, the sermon that was preached on that day. It was a victorious day. It was a day of triumph. 
On this day when Peter preached, he didn't talk about the beauty of the temple. He didn't talk about all the traditions that the Jewish people had put into place on that day. Rather, he preached about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that preaching changed lives. The triumph at the temple. At first glance, we might say, well, it was the reason for the celebration was because a man who was blind or who was unable to walk from birth, he, he just on that day was able to walk. His, his legs were free, his feet and his ankle bones were strengthened, and he got up and he walked. What a great victory it was for that man. It was a great victory for that man. But the victory wasn't, the triumph wasn't the, man, the fact that the man could walk. The triumph was in who made that man able to walk on that day. As we get started, let me give you some, a brief account of what led up to Peter's sermon. You see, Peter and John were on their way to the temple for prayer. They, they still went to the temple even though they were followers of Jesus Christ. They knew that it was important for them to go and pray at the temple. So they're on their way to the temple. They're on their way to pray. They weren't going to pray the prayers of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They were going to pray the prayers that God had laid upon their heart. And so as they're on their way to the temple to offer their prayers to God, uh, a man is, is there and he confronts them and he says, Hey, can you give me some money? I, I, I can't walk. I can't move. I, I don't have any way to make money. I need money. Can you give me money? And Peter looks at him, and I love the way the gospel, the way uh, Luke describes this for us. Peter looks at the man, and the man looks at Peter. Their eyes connected, and there was something there. And, and the man was hoping to receive money from Peter. And Peter looked at him, and he said, silver and gold, I don't have. I'm not a wealthy man. I can't give you what I don't have. Silver and gold, I do not have. But what I have, I give to you. So now he's waiting. Well, what has he got? Has he got some food for me? What is he, he going to give to me? And Peter says, in the name of Jesus, get up and walk. Wow. Get up and walk. Now, I got to tell you, this is the first miracle performed by an apostle outside the day of Pentecost or after the day of Pentecost. No miracles had been performed. But Peter says, in the name of Jesus, stand up and walk. What happens? He stood up and walked. And the Bible gives us the account of what happened there. He says, he said to him, or the Bible says, he, got, he had strength in his ankles and he got strength in his feet. And as, as this happened, he started running. He started jumping for joy. The text literally says he jumped up and down. Can you imagine in the temple, this guy was, Woo! thank you, Jesus. Thank you. He's jumping up and down for joy. He's giving praise and he's giving glory and he's giving honor to the one who is responsible for his healing. And it wasn't Peter and John. This is what led up to this message that Peter is about to let go and, and have people respond in miraculous and amazing ways. These people that were in the temple saw this man jumping up and down for joy. They knew who he was because every day they walked into the temple, he was there begging for money. Give me something. I need, I need your help. I can't do life without your help. He's begging for them to give money to him so he could just barely scrape by in his life. He was begging for money every time people went into the temple. And now they see him 
jumping for joy. They see him walking. Who is this man? What's going on? How is he doing this? How does he now walk? We know that he couldn't walk from the day he was born. And yet now we see him walking around. It's at this moment that Peter, again, seeing an opportunity to boldly proclaim the gospel, seized that opportunity and began to preach. Would you stand with me? We're going to read together Acts chapter 3, verses 11 through 26. Acts chapter 3, verse 11 says, read with me. Now, as the lame man who was healed uh, held on to Peter and John... All the people ran together to them in the porch, which is called Solomon's, greatly amazed. So when Peter saw it, he responded to the people, Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why look so intently at us, as though by our own power or godliness we made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and killed the Prince of Life, whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. And his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him was given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance, as did also your rulers, But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets, that the Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and be converted. Let your sins be made blotted out, so that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus Christ, who was preached to you before." whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. For Moses truly said to the fathers, The Lord our God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall fear in all things, whatever he says to you. And it shall be the very soul who will not fear that the prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Yes, and all the prophets from Samuel and those who follow, as many as have spoken, have also foretold these days. You are sons of the prophet and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. To you first, God, having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from your iniquities. Man, there's a lot in that. 
We could probably spend a couple of weeks on that sermon. We're not going to. We're going to try to knock it all out in one day. But listen, we are thankful for all the things that are in there. The blessing that God has given to us when he says he promised Abraham he would bless all the nations through him. He reminded them again and again that they are sons of the prophets. And the prophets spoke of the suffering of the coming of the Messiah. Not the triumphal entry of this Messiah as the conqueror, but as the suffering servant. And so we're going we're gonna to kind of take this all apart this morning and see what we can learn about it. Let's ask God to bless our time in his word this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you looking forward, anticipating what you're going to do through your word in our hearts this morning. May it change our lives because we've learned more about the gospel message of Jesus Christ in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So Acts chapter 3, verses 11 through 26 is Peter's second message. Pretty powerful message for only the second time he preached, right? Amazing things that God is going to speak through the mouth of the apostle Peter. So first of all, in verses 11 through 13, we see Peter's deflection, if you were. Now, we often think of deflection as maybe sometimes a negative thing that um, we were deflecting the blame or we're deflecting this or deflecting that. This is not the case here, though. Peter is deflecting. What is he deflecting? He's deflecting the credit, okay? He's not accepting the credit. We see something very important in this verse, that Peter is careful to give credit to whom credit is due. And in this case... Peter is not taking credit for healing the man, even though it was Peter who said, I command you, get up and walk. He's giving full credit to his Savior, to his Lord, to his Master. We see, first of all, that these people are astounded. And when they're astounded, they always want an answer, right? How did this happen? What in the world's going on here? Um, and Peter says, why do you marvel at this? Why is this something that is kind of rocking your world at the moment? Uh, uh, why do you, I love there's a South African word that we used a lot of over there, gobsmacked, gobsmacked. Okay, gob is a reference to your face in South Africa and in Britain as well. So Peter's saying, why do you look like somebody slapped you in the face? Like, what happened? You know, why are you gobsmacked? Why are you so astounded by what has happened here? God is at work. Don't you see that? God is doing something. The people that are gathering around were truly amazed. They knew who this man was. They knew his reputation. They knew that he was a crippled man, a lame man, that he that couldn't walk. It wasn't like he set up camp there one or two days. He'd been there for as long as people could remember. And now he's getting up, he's walking, he's jumping, he's leaping. It wasn't a fake, it wasn't a fraud. It really happened. It's, and we know that because these people were so astounded. Many, many times people probably had tried to help him up. No, no, I can't walk. And listen, he was there from morning to night. Every day. It wasn't like he got a, a pocket full of money and then went off and did something with that money. Okay? He was there every day. He had a genuine need. He couldn't walk. We often would drive by people at the robots in South Africa, at the stoplights, if you will, with their little sign up. Help me, please help me, give me money, give me something. They always wanted money. Okay? People would come knocking on our door. In fact, the police sometimes would bring them to our, just in front of our house and drop them off and say, that's the pastor's house, go ask him. They would, they would be looking for money. And my answer was always the same. I'm, I'm sorry I don't give money. 
I have some food here. We kept food by the front door, uh, canned food, non-perishable stuff. Uh, and I said, I'm happy to give you money. I'm happy to give you food, but I'm not going to give you money. Because you know why? They would go right to the bottle store. Nine times out of ten. You could follow them. So we just made it a, a principle. We did not give money. We gave stuff out from our church to help the poor, to, to do things to meet needs. Um, but we would not give out money. Peter said, I don't have any money. I'm not going to give you money. But what I have you is far better. What we have in the gospel message is so much better than... Now, sometimes we have to physically meet needs so they can actually even begin to comprehend the gospel message. I, I get that. I understand that. But our policy was well, always, I'll take you to the store. If I don't have what you need, and, 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 I, and I, have a, I, I genuinely sense that there's a need here, and, and sometimes, believe it or not, the Holy Spirit will be working and say, this, this guy needs more than what you have. And so I took people to the store sometimes and, and bought them stuff. And, and sometimes I, one guy, can, I, I don't have money for, to put electricity, and they had this thing, you could do pay-as-you-go electricity. So he took him to the store, we bought him a card that he could use and, and punch in the numbers and put electricity in his house. Things that we did as a church to minister to the needs of the people so they'd be ready to and willing to hear the gospel message. Peter knew that this guy had an amazing need, a genuine need, and God used him to meet that need. These people were just, a, they were totally astounded. Wow, how did that happen? How could that happen? Well, Peter wanted to set the record straight, so he acknowledged how it happened. He, he says, why do you look at us as, those the one, as though we're the ones responsible for this? We didn't do this miracle. It's not because we're super spiritual. He says, do you think that we've done this by our own power or holiness? Of course not. Peter realized that he was still a sinner. Saved by grace sinner, but nowhere near the kind of God that, or the person that Jesus was. Jesus is God. And Peter says, I don't have that power. I don't have that ability. The only way this can happen is through the power of God being at work in this individual. We're not capable of such things. Like I said, the first miracle of the church age Really, because Peter preached on Pentecost, and yes, there were miracles that happened on that day, but now we're into the church age. This is the first miracle of the church age that Peter was used by God to accomplish to raise this man up so that he could walk. You know, Peter could have started building his own kingdom here. Look at what I did. Man, I, I, I made that man walk. Isn't that pretty incredible? Isn't that amazing? Isn't that something special? You guys couldn't do that. Jesus didn't use any of the other apostles to do that. He used, Peter could have gone on with his own kingdom building campaign. But that's not what he did. Instead, he gave credit to God. He said, God, it's all about you. You're the one. Not, not Peter, not John, not any of the other apostles. What a difference between Peter and the charlatans we have today who go out on these healing campaigns. Ever hear of the name Benny Hinn? What a, what a fake he is. These guys that come up on stage, they say, come up here and I'll heal you. All they do is hit you across the head and make you fall down. <laughs> they don't do anything. Most, it's been documented. Most of the people that they quote-unquote heal didn't have any problems to start with. Okay? This was a legitimate case, a legitimate need. God used Peter to, to bring this man to, to health again. 
These faith healers today could learn from this passage. It's not about Benny Hinn or it's not about these other guys. John, uh, the guy, there's a big guy in, in, in Nigeria that people travel all over Africa to get to Nigeria because, oh, uh, this guy can heal us. No, he can't heal you. They go and they don't get healed and they come back all turned off about God because God didn't heal him because that guy didn't, didn't have the ability. You see, Peter says, this is God. God did the work. God did what only God can do. And we see that in verses 13 through 16 where he reflects on the amazing act of God in this situation. We see Peter's reflection. And, and what he does is he examines the situation. He examines the events, first of all, reminding people, hey, we need to take a look at how this is possible, why this is possible. Let me remind you at who's, the, who's at the heart of this, Peter said. It's all about a man named Jesus that you crucified. Uh-oh, Peter failed his Dale Carnegie course on how to win friends and influence people. Because where he goes with this next is not, it's not to appease people. It's not to make the Jewish listeners happy. He goes straight to the heart of the message. He says, listen to what you guys did. He examines the day that Jesus was crucified. He recalls the events of that day, and he was there. He knew what happened. He saw what happened. He reminds the Jews of their part that they played in putting Jesus to death. When we read that, did you hear? Peter says, whom you delivered up. It started with you. It started mostly with the religious leaders because they went into the crowd and they paid people to say things about Jesus that were not true. They paid people to talk badly about Jesus and accuse him about doing different things that he never did. And so the, the, by, the, by the things that these people said, Jesus was delivered to Pilate. Peter says, you delivered him up. The Jews called for the death of Christ. Pilate wanted to release him. Remember, he brought out the bowl of water and he says, I find no fault in this man. He washed his hands with the water and he says, you guys, you take him and do what you do according to your law because I've got nothing to do with it. I'm not guilty of this. It's on you. Peter says, you delivered him up. He also goes on, he says, you denied the release of the Holy One. Uh-oh. He's, he's really going out on a limb here. You know what he was saying? He was saying that Jesus is the Messiah. By calling him the Holy One, he said, you, Jewish people, you, the ones that Jesus came to as your Messiah, as the one who is going to build his kingdom, you denied the Holy One. You denied Jesus as the Messiah, as the Son of God, the promised one of Israel. And not only did you deny him, but in your denying of him, you asked for a murderer to be released in his place. Wasn't bad enough that you denied Jesus. Rather, you said, give us this man who we know is a murderer, who has broken the law, who deserves to be punished, who deserves to be hung on a cross. You wanted him instead of Jesus. Wow. That's pretty serious. That's pretty significant. And then he looks at them and he says, you, Jewish people, you that are listening to me now, you killed the prince of life. Now, before we get our chests all puffed up and we think, ah, oh, stupid Jewish people, look what they did. Can I tell you what? We would have been in the crowd crying out to crucify him. We would have been in the crowd saying, no, we don't want him. Give us Barabbas. We would have been no better. 
Because we see it in our life today. Before we came to know Jesus as our Savior, right? We didn't really want anything to do with him. We didn't think he was all that the Bible says he is. And we talk to people regularly who tell us, I don't need Jesus. I don't need him. We would have done the very same thing had we been in Jerusalem on that day. You and I and the Jews of the day killed the Prince of Life. But Peter reminds them God had a different plan. Because he says, God raised him from the dead. You see, Peter is examining all that happened at that first Easter, the Good Friday and the Easter celebration. You delivered him up. You denied the release of the Holy One. You killed the Prince of the Peace and the Prince of Life. But God raised him from the dead. And Peter and John and the other disciples could testify to the genuineness of the resurrection because they were eyewitnesses of both the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. A fair and thorough examination of Jesus' death will end up with the truth being on display. Jesus was dead, hung on a cross, killed by the people of the day, Three days later, he was raised from the dead. And not only was he raised from the dead, he appeared to hundreds of people. Now, in Jewish law, it only took two or three people to establish the case. Now we have hundreds. It can't be denied. Jesus was dead. He is alive. He is is risen from the dead. He is building his church. And he's still building his church. So after he examines the facts of the day, he goes on to explain the the results of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Peter wants people to understand the importance of the resurrection of Christ. Remember the, uh, the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15? That whole chapter is dedicated to the significance and the importance of the resurrection. Well, here in our text this morning, Peter gives us a little bit of a crash course on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He goes on to tell his listeners that the resurrection of Christ from the dead authenticates the power and the truth of the ministry of Jesus Christ and even the person of Jesus Christ, who he was. He first of all talks about in his name, the name of Jesus In the name of Jesus, what a name that name is. Acts chapter 3, verse 6, Peter said, Silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. In the name of Jesus, I'm going to give you all that I have in the name of Jesus. It was the name of Jesus through which Peter healed the lame man. Acts chapter 4, verse 12, you know it. Neither is there salvation in any other name. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. The only name that gets you into heaven, the only name that gives you a right to stand before God the Father and and have our case pled for innocence is the name of Jesus. That's the only name. There's a great little chorus that, uh, that we used to sing. Jesus, name above all names. Beautiful Savior, glorious Lord, Emmanuel, God with us, blessed Redeemer, living Word. Jesus, 
Name above all names. Bill and Gloria Gaither, you know, I give them a hard time sometimes about their eschatology, but you've got to give them due credit where, where credit is due, right? They have a, a lovely song that talks about the name of Jesus. Here's the words. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. There's just something about that name. Master, Savior, Jesus, like the fragrance after the rain. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Let all heaven and earth proclaim. Kings and kingdoms will all pass away. But there's something about that name. There's just something about that name. And then Gloria has a little spot that she reads every time the Gaithers sing the song. And there's just as much importance in what she says in that song. Here's the monologue that she gives. Jesus. The mere mention of his name can calm the storm, heal the broken, raise the dead. At the name of Jesus, I see sin-hardened men melted, derelicts transformed. The lights, the lights are hope put in the eyes of a hopeless child. At the name of Jesus, hatred and bitterness turn to love and forgiveness. Arguments cease. I've heard a mother softly breathe his name at the bedside of a child delirious from fever. And I've watched that little body be quiet, fevered brow cooled. I've sat at the bedside of a dying saint, her body racked with pain, who in those final fleeting seconds summoned her last ounce of ebbing strength just to whisper earth's sweetest name. Jesus, Jesus. Emperors have tried to destroy it. Philosophies have tried to stamp it out. Tyrants have tried to wash it from the face of the earth with the very blood of those who claimed it. Yet it still stands. And there shall be the final day when every voice that ever uttered a sound, every voice of Adam's race, shall raise in one mighty chorus to proclaim the name of Jesus. For that day every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is truly Lord. Ah, so you see, it was not mere chance that caused the angel one night long ago to say to a virgin maiden, his name shall be called Jesus. Jesus. What a name. The name of Jesus is a powerful name. It's not just the name, though. You know what's required to go with that name? Peter tells those who had gathered around and were standing gobsmacked at this healing that it's through faith in the name of Jesus. Peter wants people to know that saying the name of Jesus is not a magical formula. It's not just what you say because you don't have anything else to say. The name of Jesus must be accompanied by faith in the one who bears that name. Warren Wiersbe makes this comment. He says, faith in the name of Jesus releases power so that lives are changed. To pray or minister in his name means to ask or act on his authority. We got that authority from Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. And he goes on to say, so that he alone gets the glory. It's the name of Jesus and faith in that very name. It's the name and the faith in the name that has made this man strong whom you see and know. This man that is now the, the object of everybody's gaze and wonderment. This man that you all know so well was paralyzed and could not walk. He now stands before you. And listen, he's not standing there 
gripping on something, shaking like he can't stand. He's standing there, jumping up and down. Peter says, he stands before you strong on his own two feet because of faith in the name of Jesus. God is authenticating the church of Jesus Christ here. He gave Peter the power to heal this man, not because he wanted us to think, oh, down through the ages we're going to have the power to heal and we're going to be able to do it. He's authenticating this new thing called the church that Jesus is building. He's building his church and, and people are like, wow, God did that? You better believe it. God did that. Now that's not to say God can't do amazing things today because he's the same God today as he was then. If God wants to do an amazing act of healing an individual, he can do it and he doesn't need us. To make it happen. But you know what he does need? He needs for you and I to be praying for those things and to believing in faith that those things could happen. The emphasis here, Peter set, summarizes, he says, Yes, the faith which comes through him, Jesus Christ, has given this perfect soundness, this ability to stand on his own in the presence of all of you. You're all seeing what Jesus has done. Paul said similar things over in Ephesians chapter 2 about faith. You know it. We talk about those verses all the time. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Faith in the name of Jesus Christ has nothing to do with what I bring to the equation. I can't make it happen. God gave me the faith. God makes it happen. Well, as we continue on in the text, we see... Peter's inspection. I hope you forgive me for not alliterating these, but it's reflection, inspection. So we're rhyming this morning instead of alliterating, okay? Over the next four verses, Peter's going to reveal some things that the people of Israel need to know. You could say that his, this is his report or his inspection on the spiritual condition of the nation of Israel. What is their state right now when Peter's preaching this message? It's a state of ignorance, okay? And, and, and I'm not being rude or crude here, but, but Peter's saying, you guys are ignorant of what's going on. And you know what? I think it's the very same state that we're in right now in the world in which we live. Ignorant, choosing to be ignorant about who God is and what God wants. Peter's just proclaimed that it was the Israelites that were responsible for killing Jesus. And I reminded you that had we been there, we would have been responsible as well. He understands that their guilt is the result of ignorance, but nonetheless, they are guilty. When a person is guilty, a penalty must be paid. We know that well. Back in 1999, we had been in South Africa for just a little under a year, and it was time to renew our visas. And I got out all the paperwork to renew our visas, and the time had, you know, the, the time passed. And, and so I went to Home Affairs office, and I said, listen, uh, we need to renew our work permits. Different than our visas, we need to renew our work permits. Oh, you're too late. I said, no, no, no. I said, We're, it says we can renew. No, 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 we changed the law. Oh, really? When did you change the law? Oh, it was a while ago we changed the law. Within the year. Oh, okay, well, you changed the law, you didn't tell us about it, so please just renew our paperwork. Nope, can't do it. We had to leave South Africa, come back to America. I think we were here for four months, okay? And, and that was our penalty because we didn't know the 
things had changed. I said to myself, how am I supposed to know that you changed the law? Well, you can go to the government print house and buy the documentation. I mean, I said, you guys have my phone number, you have my email, you could have told us that we had to do that, but that's not our problem, it's your problem. As much as we pleaded ignorance, it didn't matter. It's your fault. And very fine print says that we are supposed to know those things when, when, when they check. How do you know? How do you know? We tried everything. We had a friend who had a friend who worked in the office of Dr. Mangasutu Butalezi. Okay, he was the chief home affairs officer at that point in time. She was his secretary. She pleaded our case. Too bad. Can't do anything about it. I knew we were in trouble when they, when they sent four soccer players to their country of origin and, and wouldn't dismiss their same similar situation. I said, well, South Africa's sports nuts, just, just kind of like America is sometimes. Sports nuts, that's why we call it March Madness, right? Okay. When they sent these sports stars back to their country of origin, I knew that we missionaries didn't have a chance. One going to work. One gonna, nothing we could do would change it. Only God could, and he chose not to. But our ignorance didn't excuse us. Peter says to these guys, your ignorance does not excuse you. You went along with it. it, was, it was, it's just as much your fault as it is their fault. Ignorance is not bliss. And just because one is ignorant doesn't mean things will just fade away. So what does Peter say they have to do? There has to be repentance. Even though though there's ignorance, there has to be repentance. Look at verse 19. Peter says, Repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. My friends, if you want that time of refreshing to come in your life, you have to repent. No matter how hard uh, Christine tried to get things to go her own way, she couldn't will it into existence. She couldn't have the happiness. She couldn't have the peace that she wanted until she repented and trusted Christ as her Savior. Repentance must accompany the faith that we have. We see that repentance is required for a right relationship with the Lord and to be able to receive the blessings that only He can give. In fact, we understand from what Peter says here that without repentance, we cannot realize the refreshment that can come from the Lord, the refreshment that can be ours. You and I can be refreshed to a right relationship with the Lord. When we spend time communing with Him, we are refreshed. We spend time in the house of the Lord. I, I, I talked to people, even recently, I talked to people, uh, I, I, we, we're coming back, we're coming back, I, we just got to do some things, we got to get, no, 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 no. You just got to do it. You just got to come back. Don't wait till you get all your ducks in a row. Don't wait till you get life all figured out. Church is for when you can't figure out life. Church is for when you need the help of your brother and sister in Christ to encourage you, to pray for you, to come alongside of you. You cannot get it right on your own. You need God's people. That's why he says, I'm going to use the verse. You know what it is. Hebrews chapter 4. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. That isn't so we can say, oh, look how many people we had in church today. That's so you can get what you need to get to do life every day. 
He says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is, but so much more as you see the day approaching. In other words, as the days get worse and worse and worse in your life, don't quit coming to church because that's when you need it most. I'm not telling you that. That's what scripture says. So if you're interacting with those who you haven't seen in a while, remind them. This is the place to be, to be encouraged to go on and do what God wants you to do. I think C.I. Schofield makes an amazing comment here. He says, the appeal to repent and the promise of the times of refreshing refer to the Old Testament prophecies that prior to the second advent of the Messiah, the godly remnant of the nation of Israel will repent and turn to God in preparation for the millennial blessings to follow the second advent. The nation as a whole rejected Peter's entreaty, and though individuals believed in Christ and were saved, there was no fulfillment of the requirements of national repentance. You see, there has to be repentance. There has to be a, yes, I was wrong, I'm sorry for that God, and I want to do what is right. Repentance, you know what it means? It means an about face. It means you're going in one direction, and then you do an about face, and you turn around, and you start going in the other direction. That direction was away from God and towards self. This direction brings you back to God. And you get there by the scriptures and by fellowshipping with other believers. This this time that Peter's talking about is future. It's still to come, but there's personal application for you and I. When we're struggling in our walk with the Lord, when we're not living as we ought to live, we need to repent and get back on track in our relationship with Jesus Christ. So we move from ignorance to repentance to acceptance. Along with repentance, there must be an acceptance of what God expects. What did God want from them? He wanted the Israelites to believe and to accept Jesus as their long-awaited Messiah. That's what Peter was preaching for here. He wanted them to understand that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the only answer. If they would accept him, then restoration that Peter is talking about in verse 21 here could be realized. When you and I repent and accept what God says in the pages of Scripture, we can have that beautiful relationship and peace restored in our lives. The restoration Peter's talking about is very specific here and and is best understood by putting our minds in the minds of the original readers. You see, the Jews knew that things were not the way God desired them to be and that they were far from Him. Restoration means that they would be brought back to a former state, what was that state? That was state of their forefathers when they walked with the Lord. Remember, Jesus said in Habakkuk, there will be a time when you are my people. That's, that's prior to the coming of Jesus to the earth and his death on the cross. And then Habakkuk says, there will be a time when you are not my people. That's a parenthetical time period. That's where you and I are today. We're in that parenthetical time period when the Jews are not the people of God. And then Habakkuk says, but hold on, there will then come a time when you are my people again. To the Jewish people. That time is coming. Has not arrived yet. God is working with the church. He's drawing people to himself. He's saving people like you and I. He's grafting us into the vine as he talks about in John chapter 15. But there's going to come a time when he brings restoration to the people of Israel. And that restoration, that promised future restoration brings us hope as well. 
We know that God will restore our walking with him when we fall out of fellowship with him or choose, we don't really fall, we choose to get out of fellowship with him. 1 John 1.9 talks about that restoration. You know what it says? If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Well, Peter chooses to uh, have an interjection here in verses 22 through 26. At this point, he's going to interject some things that he is convinced the Lord wants them to know and practice. First of all, he says, I want you to understand that this is awaiting fulfillment. He explains it to them. He, He talks about this prophet like Moses who's going to be raised up. Peter quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, where Moses says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, From your brethren, him you shall hear. Peter is suggesting that Jesus Christ is that prophet that Moses was talking about. And and you need to wait for his fulfillment. But he says, be aware. Be aware of not accepting the promised one. Because if you don't accept the promised one, then you're not going to like the consequences. Moses said that all should listen to this prophet. But Peter tells us what will happen if they don't listen. It's not pleasant. You know what he says? He says that they will be utterly destroyed. Those of you who reject Jesus as the Messiah and don't turn to him and don't accept him, you will be utterly destroyed. You know what Paul says in Romans chapter uh, 6, verse 23? The wages of sin is death. What is destruction? Back in Ezekiel 18, twice the prophet says, the soul who sins shall surely die. doesn't matter what age you live in. If you reject God's truth, destruction will come upon you. So what's the answer? The answer is anticipate Jesus. Look for Jesus. The Old Testament prophets, and we read that in our text this morning. We're not going to get it a lot into that because we don't have the time. But the Old Testament prophets told of the Jesus, the prophet like Moses. The King James Study Bible makes this comment. It says, the prophetic testimonies of Samuel and the subsequent prophets are added to that of Moses. The whole Old Testament prophetic testimony is to show that Jesus was indeed the expected Messiah, but in the plan of God was crucified, buried, and raised from the dead. You see, Did you remember how many times you read about the prophets said this, the prophets said that, the prophets, the prophets, the prophets? Peter is saying that to remind them, the prophets told you about Jesus. The prophets said that Jesus was coming. The prophets said that he would be a suffering servant, but you didn't accept him. You see, the Jews, they should have been looking forward to the coming of Jesus, and to some degree they were, but you know what the problem was? They wanted Jesus, they wanted God on their terms, not on God's terms. Isn't that the problem we face today? People want God on their own terms, not on God's terms. Oh, I'll take a little bit of God. It's like, a, it's like you drive up to the drive-thru and say, I want this, I want this, I want this. Or you're ordering a pizza. I want this, 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 and this on my pizza. No, you've got to take God on God's terms. You can't have him on your own terms. And Peter's trying to help the Jewish people understand that. We have an appealing here by the Apostle Peter. He's crying out to the children of the prophets. He calls them that. He refers to them as the children of the prophets. Peter wants his listeners to to remember that they are the chosen ones of God. He wants to draw them in so they will make application of these challenging words. Not only is Peter calling them the children of the prophets, but he reminds them that they are heirs of the covenants that were made by God to the patriarchs of Israel. 
And can I point out something here? Peter reminds the children of Israel that they are the children of the covenant. He does not put the church in the place of Israel here. Could have been a perfect time to do it, to make that substitution. But Peter didn't do it because that's not God's plan. God's plan is to fulfill all those promises to the covenant people. And the church has not taken the place of the covenant people, the covenant relationship that God has with Israel. He doesn't say that the church now receives those promises. McDonald uh, makes this comment. He says, in this sermon by Peter delivered to the people of Israel, we notice that it is the kingdom that is in view rather than the church. Also, the emphasis is national rather than individual. You see, that's why I tell you that the book of Acts is transitional. He starts out dealing with the Jewish people, moving on into the church. Okay? Right now, Peter's preaching. These are, these are kingdom promises. These are promises to the nation of Israel. McDonald goes on. He says, the Spirit of God is lingering over Israel in long-suffering mercy pleading with God's ancient people to receive the glorified Lord Jesus as their Messiah and thus hasten the advent of Christ's kingdom to the earth. God's still going to set up the kingdom of Jesus Christ on the earth. It's still going to happen. And you know, I've said it before, what's holding it up is the last person to come to know Jesus as their Savior. Peter's saying if more people come to know Jesus as their Savior, Jesus come back quicker. Yes, there is a timetable in God's plan. We don't understand it, and you know, a day is as a thousand years with the Lord, and a thousand years is one day. So the time doesn't really matter, but Peter says, that's what's holding it up. That's what's keeping Jesus from coming back. Start preaching the word, my friends. Start telling others about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Give them the heart of Peter's message here. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, you know it. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. You preach the gospel. You let God bring people to himself, and he will come back at his appointed time. What a message. And yes, this message was primarily preached to the Jewish listeners. But in verse 26, we see, To you first God raised him, Jesus, to bless you by turning everyone of you from your wicked ways. To you Jewish people, first this message is preached, just like the kingdom of God was offered to the Jewish people first, and they rejected it. And so now Peter is going to eventually start focusing his ministry, and then Paul more is so on the Gentile people. But to you first, this truth has been preached so you can receive it, you can hear it, you can know it, you can accept it, you can let God change your life, and then it's going to go to the others, be offered to others. Because the Jews have rejected Christ, Peter, and God considered them wicked people. But can I tell you this? Anyone who rejects Jesus Christ is a wicked person. Now you might look at them and say, oh, they're not so bad. Their heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? If you're here this morning and you've rejected God's message of salvation through his son, then you fall into the category of being wicked. Not because I call you wicked, but because that's what God says. You must also repent. And with this repentance comes a right relationship with the Father through Jesus Christ. As Peter challenged the Israelites to repent, we too can be challenged and challenge others to also repent. You see, we know what God expects from us. So we need to ask ourselves this question. Am I living as I ought to this morning, today, 
March 26th, 2023? Am I where God wants me to be? Or is there something I need to change? Is there something that I need to repent? Do I need to get right with him? And if there is, you know the steps. You quiet yourself before God. You humble yourself before God and you confess and you repent. I'm not saying get saved again because that's not what we believe. Scripture teaches that once you know Christ as your Savior, you have everlasting life. But we do find ourselves from time to time out of fellowship with him. And that's when we repent and we restore that sweet fellowship that only God can give to us. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you and we thank you for the appeal from the Apostle Peter to repent and to get right. You know the hearts of each person sitting in this room this morning. You know the spiritual state of everyone, whether they are born again, whether they know Jesus Christ as their Savior, or whether they're not. Father, some may need to repent for the first time and trust Jesus Christ as the only and all-sufficient means of being reconciled to you, the Holy God. And Father, maybe there's some of us here this morning that need to look at where we are in our walk with you and say, oh, God, forgive me. And I need to repent. I need to stop what I'm doing and start doing what you ask me to do and living for you. Father, you know where we are. We ask that your Holy Spirit would do the work that only your Holy Spirit can do in our heart and in our lives and bring us to that place of repentance where our relationship can be restored to sweet, sweet fellowship through that name of Jesus. There's something about that name. We ask, Lord, that that name and the faith that accompanies it would do a work in our hearts today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.